Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. There are things that go bump in the night, Agent Myers. Make no mistake about that. And we are the ones who bump back. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 38, Hellboy, uh, a completely different beast, uh, excuse the pun, than the last episode on Clueless, um, but I do like to mix it up a little and try and do different things. Obviously, if you listen to the episode on Clueless, uh, thank you very much. Um, I got some really nice feedback on Clueless, so that's great. If you're new to Verbal Diorama, welcome. Uh, feel free to listen to any of the preceding 37 episodes to get a good idea of me. I love movies. Uh, that's why I'm here. Um, I also always look for the positives if I can. So if you've come here expecting movie bashing, uh, well, you've come to the wrong place. But hello anyway. And Hellboy is a really fascinating topic to cover. It's darker than most comic book adaptations for a start. Um, and it really is one of my favourite comic book adaptations. And I love a lot of comic book adaptations. Um, I haven't covered all that many of them on this podcast because I don't want it to just be a podcast of comic book adaptations. But Hellboy is particularly special. Um, next week, I'll be bookending this little two-parter that I'm doing on Hellboy to the Golden Army. Um, but although the sequel is visual treat, um, it's very much Del Toro going all out on his visual splendour, uh, a greater exploration of the characters we get introduced to here. Um, it's easy to miss the genius of the original um, and why it means so much to so many um, and what it did so well that the recent reboot just missed the target by miles. So uh, without further ado, because I've got a lot that I want to get through on this episode, Let's start with the trailer for Hellboy. Watch your hands and elbows. Pardon? <sighs> Welcome. 
Welcome to the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense. There are things that go bump in the night, Agent Myers. And we are the ones who bump back. Hellboy. Well, come on in. Meet the rest of the family. Abraham Sapien. Liz Sherman? It's a beautiful name. Don't worry, Boy Scout. She'll take care of you. These freaks. They give me the creeps. Really? Every time the media gets a look at him, they come running to me. I'm running out of life. If there's trouble, all us freaks have is each other. What the hell is that? Something big. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. Sixty years ago, they tried to destroy the world. They're back. this door ancient evil oh well let me go in and say hi gonna be okay how big can it be so a quick synopsis on hellboy 60 years ago scientist trevor broom and allied soldiers crashed a nazi outpost on the coast of scotland where rasputin and hitler's top assassin were attempting to open a portal to release the og Druid jihad while the portal was open an infant demon came through they called him hellboy 60 years later, Hellboy is one of the best agents in the US government's top secret Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defence, alongside Abe Sapien, a fishman with psychic powers, and Liz Sherman, a pyrokinetic who vacillates between wanting to be on the BRPD and wanting to be a normal human. They're joined by FBI agent John Myers, who was chosen specifically by Professor Broom to provide the moral support for Hellboy to become a man. And Hellboy will need all the support he can get. Rasputin has been resurrected by his lover Ilsa Halpstein and his personal assistant Karl Ruprecht Cronin. The villainous trio frees the hellhound Samael as the first step in a plan to force Hellboy to fulfil his destiny and destroy the world. It's always world destroying with these things, isn't it? Let's quickly go through the cast of this movie. Uh, we have Ron Perlman as Hellboy, Selma Blair as Liz Sherman. Doug Jones as Abe Sapien. Uh, so Doug Jones did the performance. He also did the voice. The voice was dubbed over um, for the final movie by David Hyde Pierce. You'll recognise his voice from Frasier. Um, David Hyde Pierce is actually uncredited for the voice um, because after he saw the movie, uh, he actually refused the credit for the voice. He refused to attend press tours or the premiere. Um, and that was really a mark of respect for Doug Jones' performance. Um, obviously, Doug Jones has featured on this podcast before. He was the lead gentleman in my Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode that I did last Halloween. Uh, he was the lead gentleman in Hush. 
Um, also, Jeffrey Tambell as Tom Manning, Carl Roden as Grigory Rasputin, Rupert Evans as Agent John Myers, and John Hurt as Professor Trevor Broom. Uh, the movie was written by Guillermo del Toro and Peter Briggs, and it was directed by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, it was based on Hellboy, the comic book by Mike Mignola. Um, Mike Mignola originally conceptualised a demon with the name Hellboy while doodling for a convention programme cover. He liked the idea of a character rather than a team, mainly because he couldn't think of a cool name for a team, but he could think of a cool name for the character. He really liked the name Hellboy. Um, Hellboy, the comic, is published by Dark Horse. Um, other Dark Horse comics properties um, have been adapted into feature films they include the mask tank girl barbed wire time cop sin city its sequel 300 and its sequel and also previous episode of verbal diorama episode number 23 which is the wonderful mystery men so the concept of hellboy was originally pitched to dc dc loved it but they didn't like the word hell and you'll find this throughout this podcast is that the word hell is there's a big problem with the word hell. Uh, it, there's a massive aversion to this hell. It comes up a lot. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it's a bit of a problem when, you know, you want the character to be called Hellboy. Hellboy issue number one, Seed of Destruction, came out in 1994. But the character himself first appeared on the cover of Dime Press number four in March 1993. His first appearance in a regularly published title in colour um, because previously for the San Diego Comic-Con comics number two, he was black and white only. So his first appearance in a regularly published title in colour was Next Gen number 21 in December 1993. Seed of Destruction was a four issue miniseries. And it's this miniseries that the movie is mostly based on. Other storylines used include bits from the stories Right Hand of Doom and Box Full of Evil. And homages also to storylines in The Corpse and Pancakes. The original origin story of the character of Hellboy had him conceived in 1617. His human mother, Sarah Hughes, was a witch and the consort of the archdemon Azael, who was technically Hellboy's biological father. Sarah was dying and as Sarah attempted to repent on her deathbed, Azael burned her away to reveal a baby boy. Azael then, not going far enough to burn away this woman, then amputated the baby boy's right hand and replaced it with this stone hand, the right hand of doom. And the right hand of doom is a relic tied to the Ogdru Jihad. The baby was then sent away and summoned back to earth as an infant by Grigory Rasputin in the final months of World War II. So that's the comic book origin of Hellboy. Um, and it's a pretty gruesome start for the character. And, and to be honest, I'm really glad the movie doesn't go there uh, because no one wants to see um, an infant, whether it's a demon or not, having their right arm amputated. Uh, it's, just, it's just no one wants to see that. Um, so there are a few differences between the comic and the movie. Um, the tone is a lot grittier in the comics. Um, Mignola often attempts to scare the reader in what they don't see rather than what they do. There's also no relationship between Hellboy and Liz in the comics, although I think that change actually works pretty well for the movie. Um, and also the, the look of Hellboy is pretty similar. You can see the comics and you can see exactly what they tried to do with the makeup and the practical effects and the prosthetics. 
And I mean, the character of Hellboy in this movie just looks so great. Um, but he doesn't have cloven hooves for feet because presumably Ron Perlman <laughs> had everything else going on um, and the cloven hooves were a bit too much. But personally, I think it's fine. Um, the movie itself spent many years in gestation, as a lot of these movies do. It was originally conceived in 1996 and Guillermo del Toro expressed interest in 1997. Del Toro actually gave up directing Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban to do Hellboy. And as I've said, the concept of Hellboy as a character, it didn't go down too well with studios. Um, and it, it's not really very difficult to understand why. Um, and again, it's this um, aversion to the word hell. Um, they didn't like that he had the word hell in his name. Um, the studios actually wanted him to be a regular guy who turned into Hellboy when he got angry. Um, you know, didn't the Hulk already do that? <laughs> uh, Del Toro was quite insistent that the character stay true to his origins, um, even down to the famous right hand of doom. Um, but luckily, Ron Perlman is ambidextrous. So there was talk, actually, during the movie of potentially having a left hand of doom. Um, but thankfully, because they cast Ron Perlman and because he's ambidextrous, they could have the right hand of doom. Uh, while Mike Mignola and Guillermo del Toro agreed there was only one choice for Hellboy's titular character, and they, they both said the name straight out. They both wanted Ron Perlman for this role. The studios wanted someone else. Um, in the running for the role of Hellboy included Vin Diesel and Dwayne Johnson. Uh, in addition, del Toro himself wasn't the first choice for director. Uh, others considered included Jean-Pierre Junet, Peter Hyams and David S. Goya. And Looking back, you really couldn't see anyone but Del Toro doing this movie. And and it's a bit of a strange thing to say because comparably, I'm I'm not going to talk too much about the Golden Army this episode because I want to reserve Golden Army speak for next. But it's it's really interesting the comparison between Hellboy and Hellboy 2 the Golden Army because they are very similar, but they're very different as well. Um, they've got completely different looks, completely different styles, but they are intrinsically linked to each other. Um, but looking at, even looking at Hellboy and Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, you can tell, is a Del Toro movie. Hellboy on the surface doesn't look like a Del Toro movie, but it also kind of does look like a del toro movie when you actually go into it when you take away called the surface layers of the movie and actually look at it um it is a del toro movie it's very reminiscent of quite a lot of his other things it's got very strong links to other movies that he's done um so it's it's quite interesting actually to to revisit a movie like this it was originally envisaged as stop motion um in the style of ray harryhausen uh, the movie's action scenes were staged in homage to harryhausen's use of little to no camera movement and lots of wide shots hellboy is a comic and a character that's steeped in mythology the occult the paranormal, and specifically Lovecraftian horror, which, I'll be honest, was a terminology completely new to me. <laughs> so I decided that I wanted to do a little bit of digging and find out more about Lovecraftian horror. And I wanted to be able to really understand what that meant in the context of Hellboy. So Lovecraftian horror 
uh, originates from the author Howard Phillips Lovecraft. And he takes the notion of fear created by man versus the forces of nature and elaborates on it. Um, and by that, I mean that nature is cruel. Um, nature doesn't care about humanity. Um, and that's kind of why we have irrational fears of things like bugs or snakes or spiders or sharks uh, or other things beginning with S. I don't know why. I just thought of all those things beginning with S. But um, it's a mix of the fear of the unknown, uh, such as the fear of what's in deep water that you can't see, and the fear of the unfamiliar. Um, that we as humans can be challenged by something that we'd have no chance of saving ourselves from apart from Jess who won't shut up in the background um, so it's the idea that something can't be reasoned with or pleaded with it just has this one focus and that's to destroy us um, and what Lovecraft did was he introduced cosmic horror and so that outside of our world and our reality there were beings that were so incredibly large monstrous and an impersonal behemoths um essentially ancient gods who wish nothing but to inflict pain and terror uh, and if released they could cause devastating destruction to the world as we know it and that is essentially uh the backbone of hellboy is that these creatures um that rasputin is trying to release at the start of the movie um he's trying to open a portal and, and get these creatures through, the only thing that manages to come through is Hellboy. Um, and at the end of the movie, with all of the, the tentacles and the monsters, they are the Ogdru Jahad. And they will essentially be inflicting hell on Earth. Um, and in order to get hell on Earth, you need to use the right hand of doom as the key. Um, and that is essentially where we are <laughs> but um anyway sorry I've completely lost track of my thoughts so um so that's kind of a brief explanation of Lovecraftian horror and what I mean by Lovecraftian horror in regards to Hellboy um I just briefly want to mention something called the Call of Cthulhu and I hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly um so the Call of Cthulhu was a short story by Lovecraft uh, where earth was once ruled by monsters they were called Cthulhu. Um, they were imprisoned in an alternate dimension waiting for an apocalyptic event when they could be released. They could then reclaim the earth and destroy humanity. Um, so, again, very similar to essentially what we were looking at in Hellboy. And for them, it's probably just Tuesday. But for us, it would be the destruction of everything. The quote at the beginning of the movie is from the De Vermis Mysterious um, which is a book mentioned in the Lovecraftian mythos. Um, I also just want to shout out a little bit because there are multiple similarities with Hellboy and Constantine. And Constantine, uh, I also did an episode on, it's number 26. Um, they're both very similar in themes and tone. There's actually a lot of um, pieces online of lots of team-ups like fan fiction team-ups between Hellboy and Constantine um, and I think that's because they are very similar they feel very similar they're both anti-heroes they both share uh, a gothic horror aesthetic they both deal with religious themes specifically Catholicism um, 
And they also both came out at similar times. So Hellboy came out in 2004 and Constantine came out in 2005. Um, Whereas Constantine is at war with religion, Hellboy embraces it. Um, It even goes so far as to have him embellished with a crucifix on the poster for the movie. Um, Sort of as if that will satisfy the communities who don't like the fact that it has the word hell in the name. Um, The character of Hellboy even uses his father's rosary to remind himself of who he really is. Um, The fact that he is his father's son. He's not Rasputin's tool. Um, And that's something that I want to talk about a little bit later, this relationship between essentially two fathers. Where Constantine remains quite dark and muted in its colours, it's very kind of more of a restricted colour tone. Um, Hellboy does restrict those tones but to everything other than Hellboy Abe and Liz um Del Toro reportedly said that nothing in the movie could be read except for Hellboy because Hellboy being red and being so clearly red (laughs) had to pop right off the screen Um, and the color palette used to surround him was kept very purposely complimentary um When I move on to the next episode and we talk about Hellboy to the Golden Army, the use of colour is dramatically different because whereas Hellboy uses very cool colouring, lots of greys, blacks, whites and blues, for the sequel, Del Toro creates this very diverse, warm and brighter world um, but also enhances the colour of Hellboy and Abe by using complementary shades as well. But I want to talk about that on Hellboy to the Golden Army because that is something else and I don't want to keep coming back to the Golden Army because Hellboy itself is it's it's a great movie but I think it is complemented by Hellboy to the Golden Army and there are things that the Golden Army does really well there are things that this does they are like I say they're very different but they're very similar it's really difficult to kind of explain on a podcast but they're both great um also um I mean adaptations of comic books have been around for decades Um, But superheroes and comic book movies really started to become incredibly popular and critically well received in the early 2000s, sort of maybe late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I'm trying to remember because I think Blade did come out first. I think Blade came out in 98 and the first X-Men movie came out in 2000. Um, But in the the early 2000s, you had the uh, X-Men movies, X-Men 1 and 2, Spider-Man uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, uh, the first one, the second one. Um, obviously, then Blade Two, which was previously directed by Guillermo del Toro, which is excellent, by the way. Um, and also, the year after this, uh, Batman Begins came out. So, all of these characters, X-Men, Spider-Man, Blade, Batman, all had movies out during this early 2000s period. Um, there were some that didn't do quite so well. <laughs> um I mean, we also had Daredevil, we also had Catwoman, um, we also had Ang Lee's Hulk. Um, They all had very mixed to negative reviews. Um, But I think 2004 specifically is seen as a good year for superhero movies. Um, Not only did we get Hellboy, um, we also got Spider-Man 2 and we also got The Incredibles. Um, And both are very starkly different to Hellboy. Um, You know how much I love The Incredibles. I did an episode on The Incredibles. It's episode 30, by the way. Um, And I also mentioned in my Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse episode about how much I love Spider-Man 2 and how great Spider-Man 2 is. It really does hold up. Um, 
And so does Hellboy. Hellboy really does hold up. It's still really fascinating and interesting to watch. Um, I'm going to talk about the effects um, in a little bit because there are some things that don't quite hold up. Um, but I feel like I need to talk about the elephant in the room. And it's a big elephant. And I I know I said I wasn't going to talk about the reboot, but I feel like I can't not. Um, because I think everyone knows that they tried to reboot the character and that movie came out last year in 2019. And it was pretty panned across the board. Um, I don't know anyone who actually liked it. um i mean i watched it i really didn't like it there are positives about it but overall i thought it was a bit of a jumbled mess um and i think that the the makers of that movie the first thing they did was um blame the fans of this franchise um and i don't think it's as simple as as that that it's it's the fans of the del toro franchise that didn't like it because it wasn't del toro and it wasn't ron perlman um i think there is undoubtedly a resentment in the fan base that del toro was never able to finish his trilogy um because essentially this reboot came along even though there was a talk for many 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 years about hellboy 3 um and that for del toro to come back and for Ron Perlman to come back specifically and and finish this trilogy that was obviously teased at the end of Hellboy 2 The Golden Army which again I will speak more about uh, and I'll speak more about this mooted Hellboy 3 in in Hellboy 2 The Golden Army but um, I feel like with this reboot um, that they took a character that was incredibly beloved and, and Hellboy is Hellboy Del, Del Toro's Hellboy and Ron Perlman's Hellboy is is such a great character. And I want to talk about why he's a great character in a little bit. But I feel like they took this character that was, yeah, a little bit gruff, a little bit rough around the edges. The sort of guy that, yeah, you'd probably like to hang out with down the pub, but you don't know kind of how you'd feel like living with him. Um, because he's a bit messy. Um, but he's, he's also likeable. He loves what he loves he loves cats and pancakes and he's he's quippy and funny and and also relatable he has this internal struggle between who his father wants him to be and who he's destined to be um and that is something that makes hellboy incredibly endearing as a character um but somehow they took all these things that made hellboy great and they made him none of those things um and I'm still not entirely sure why. Um, the humour in the 2019 reboot always felt really misplaced. Um, it never felt organic. The special effects just looked really bad. Going on to a highlight, because I do think it's a highlight of that particular movie, the best sequence in the movie is probably the Baba Yaga scene, um, which has some very impressive practical effects. But again, it just kind of feels like they're just slopped it into place and they never really gave it much thought i would happily not watch the 2019 movie again uh, just as much as i'd happily watch this movie again in its place uh, if if that if that kind of makes sense i don't think it does i've said it but i don't think it makes sense anyway i would prefer to i would much prefer to watch this again and again and again i'd be happy to watch this again and again i w- i don't think i'll ever watch 
the Hellboy reboot again. I, I have no interest in seeing it. Um, and I think the fact that Mike Mignola himself loves the 2004 movie, he created the character. I think that's literally all you need to know about the 2004 Hellboy. So why does the 2004 movie work for me personally? Well, it's really simple, actually. Um, it's called Hellboy. And by that, you need your main character, the character of Hellboy, to be the centre of this movie universe and to have everything placed on his shoulders. And by the power of Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman, they take all of this stuff and they place it on Ron Perlman's shoulders and he just handles it. Everything that they throw at him, he can manage with. Um, And... Hellboy is a character, you instantly root for him. His kindness shows through his gruff exterior. It's a really easy movie for children, especially to watch, because obviously they can't watch the reboot because it's R-rated. Um, and also to understand the really simple fact that looks can be deceiving and to not judge a book by its cover. Uh, Hellboy is essentially the devil, the Antichrist, Um And to look at him, if you saw him on the street, you would probably run in the other direction. Um, But despite his looks, he loves his friends. He loves his father. He loves Liz. As I said, he loves kittens. He goes out of his way to take care of kittens. I mean, if that's not an instant character trait that anyone can relate to, I don't know what is. Um, Like I said, it makes him relatable. But also the fact that Hellboy is not perfect, although... Hellboy, as a character, has all of these wonderful personality traits. He does make mistakes. Um, He is impetuous. You know, like I said, he's gruff. He's moody. Um, He likes what he likes. Um, But Hellboy also does manage to learn from his mistakes. Um, He goes through a period of being insanely jealous of Liz, experiencing this very human interaction with Myers that him and her just simply can't have because he's Hellboy. Um, He also experiences extreme loss. Um, He is not even allowed to grieve at his own father's funeral, which is completely heartbreaking. Again, because he's Hellboy, because he's this secret that the government are trying to hide, but that everyone knows about. Um, It's also a tale of nature versus nurture, which is something that I find just incredibly fascinating just generally uh hellboy literally a child from hell um was brought into the world by rasputin uh rasputin was the one who opened the portal rasputin was the one who essentially wanted to bring something through um but rasputin never got a chance because he was sucked through the portal quite violently um and it was broom that ended up raising this child um his nature his very essence as hellboy is to create this apocalypse and bring about cthulhu but instead he's raised by a loving caring and compassionate father as opposed to someone like rasputin who would literally raise him to be the devil and to be the antichrist um it would be very easy to see the outcome for a hellboy that's been raised by rasputin Um, And how remarkably different it would be to a Hellboy raised by someone like Professor Broom, who 
is such a caring and kind person um, who never raises his voice. Well, I suppose he does. Like most fathers, he does when he has to. Um, but essentially, to Rasputin, Hellboy would simply be a tool to bring about the apocalypse. And, and Broom puts it very, very simply and succinctly and perfectly when he says that he knows what to call him. You know, he calls him son. And it's just such a beautiful moment when you know that Broom loves this child, even though it's not his own child, even though this child came through from a completely different place altogether, that he still loves him and still raised him like his own and gave him all of these wonderful personality traits that we see on screen and just fall in love with. That came from having this very caring, very attentive father. Um, and then we get a scene going through this motion with Professor Broom, who dies a lot earlier in the comics, by the way, than he does in the movie. And Del Toro did that on purpose, uh, which is just heartbreaking. Um, and then we get to uh, the death scene. Um, and there's almost a, a respect, a weird respect that Rasputin has for Broom, um, which is something that's not very often seen between adversaries in comic book movies. Usually it's just, uh, you know, I will, I will kill you and, you know, and then you die kind of thing. Um, but this is two fathers, really. Um, and they both have their own aspirations for Hellboy. Um, and it just happens that one is dying from cancer and the other is a vessel for the Ogdru Jihad. Uh, Rasputin respects Broom enough to give him a quick death. Um, and he goes by his uh, promise. It's executed swiftly. Um, and John Hurt is just majestic in this movie. I don't think there's any other... I don't think there's any movie that John Hurt's ever done where he's just not been complete perfection. Um, but one of the reasons I think this movie works is this relationship between... John Hurt's Professor Broom and Ron Perlman's Hellboy. Um, and I think it, it mainly comes down to the casting. Um, you have this acting, this legendary acting behemoth in the wonderful late John Hurt. And you also have this casting of Ron Perlman. Um, and Ron Perlman um, is this massive, sort of huge, imposing man uh, he was 54 at the time of filming. He has this booming voice um, that's instantly recognisable and commanding. And yet against John Hurt's sort of wise, very softly spoken, very dignified broom, um, Hellboy instantly becomes like a sullen, rebellious teenager. Um, it's like a mix of fear, respect and teen angst that this hulking great 54 year old man in red makeup can just switch from being the biggest thing in the room to the smallest literally just with the presence of John Hurt um it's it's quite astonishing and and it's all respect to Ron Perlman really um who takes this character and and literally just runs with it he commands the screen um, he also did a lot of his own stunts. He broke a rib and he made a quip during filming that he had other ribs. Um, and Ron Perlman manages to look menacing and also kind of cute at the same time. And that sounds really weird now I'm saying that, but it's true. He has this kind of very cute look um, 
it's it's really bizarre because I think if you see Ron Perlman without makeup, he doesn't look like Hellboy, but Hellboy looks quite a lot like Ron Perlman, which is kind of obvious, really. Um, but for Ron Perlman to be able to portray the the strength, the humour and the vulnerability needed for this character, who's essentially the Antichrist, um, it's genuinely like he was born for this role. Um he spent four hours in the makeup chair every day to look, as he says, that good. Um, and he really, really looks great. Um, the the practical effects, the makeup and the CG, because a lot of the time his tail is CG. It never once doesn't feel like it's all Hellboy. Um, underneath all of the layers of makeup and prosthetics, Ron Perlman can still portray the nuance and the subtle emotions that the character is constantly battling against. Um, I'm, I'm going to go out and say that I, I feel like Ron Perlman is as perfect a choice for Hellboy as there could ever be. And again, this is something that the 2019 reboot just could not match. Because although I like David Harbour as an actor, I think he's great in Stranger Things. I'm very much looking forward to seeing him in Black Widow. There is no one who can pull this off other than Ron Perlman. Um... So I think, really, the reboot was was doomed before it ever came to fruition. Because you, I don't think there's anyone who can do this other than Ron Perlman. As I mentioned, the CG doesn't always work. Um, the, uh, the fight scenes with Samael, uh, a lot of the time Samael is uh, a guy in a suit. Um, and, and those sort of fights actually look quite decent uh, because they're very practical. It's when you get the CG fights. Um, there's one specifically where uh, they fall down a shaft and it's it's very, very obvious that it's very rudimentary CG. Um, it does look a little bit dated. Um, and well, I'm not going to lie about it because it's, it's very clear and I've only got a DVD, so I don't even know what it looks like in Blu-ray or in 4K. I can only imagine it looks quite a little bit worse. Um, it's not quite good enough CG to say the the effects still hold up today um, because they don't. Everything else in the movie does. Uh, the practical effects, the makeup, everything just looks spectacular. One thing I will say that holds up is the effects used for Liz's flames. I think they look really, really great. Um, I know that they actually made their own software to do that. Um, it was very complex. They really wanted her skeleton to actually show through the flames and I think that overall I think that looks really really great still um but the actual CG Hellboy itself um does not look brilliant um but then you know you watch 2004 film you're gonna have 2004 CGI so you've kind of got to take the rough with the smooth overall this movie is smooth um but there's a little bit of roughness there um I don't think it detracts from the movie at all because I think it's just so much fun to watch. But um, I also just want to talk about some of the other characters in the movie because um, I feel I've been talking a lot about Hellboy um, and there's still quite a lot more to go. So um, I want to talk a little bit about Abe, Abe Sapien, because Abe Sapien is such a great character. Um, he's fascinating and complex. He's very much the yin to Hellboy's yang um, but they do complement each other really nicely. Um, Abe is fleshed out and given a bit more to do in the sequel. Again, I'll talk about that next episode. 
but his design is fascinating. His big eyes just instantly endear you to him. Um, his design is the complete opposite of Hellboy's because he Abe looks friendly. Abe is softly spoken. Abe is incredibly intelligent. He's a keen reader. Um, and he's a lover of disgusting rotten food, which is all the opposite of Hellboy. Um, Doug Jones uh, is, as always, the master of performance art, gestures, and just looking otherworldly. Um, as I said, uh, I talked about him a lot in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer Hush episode. And genuinely, I'm delighted that he gets more to do in the sequel because he is fantastic and I love Doug Jones. Um, Doug Jones, obviously, like Ron Perlman, has worked a lot with Del Toro on other projects, um, specifically things like Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water. Um, Liz, as the only sort of super-powered human on the team, has a unique ability to be able to live in both worlds. Um, but she wants to live in the human world. She doesn't want to be part of the BPRD. Um, but her powers and her inability to control the powers means she has a bit of a knack for causing destruction um, and it's often outside of her control. Um, and a lot of her control comes with being with the BPRD or being hospitalised. Um, Selma Blair, I think, is really great. Um, it's one of the, my favourite roles that she's done, the role of Liz Sherman, because she's very sort of understated and very subdued, but you can really see the frustration and the sorrow that her character has, like dealing with these powers that cause so much destruction. Um, Rasputin causing her to burn down this hospital, um, which they did with miniatures, and it's really interesting. There's a video online, actually, that shows how they did it. Um, it's that's the only place that she felt safe and incident free and she destroyed it uh her flame being blue in this movie indicates her lack of control because the blue flame um is burning too hot again in the sequel which i keep going back to the sequel i don't mean to but the sequel um her fire burns orange and that signifies she has a bit more control over her powers in that movie um agent myers is um well, <laughs> he's he's very much the weak point of this movie for me, and I think for a lot of people. He is basically standing for audience exposition. He does okay at that. Um, and in most movies, he'd end up with the girl at the end. Um, and, you know, Rupert Evans is kind of hot. <laughs> um, but look, Agent Myers does what he needs to do. But, uh, but yeah, he's hot. Um, Hellboy's relationships actually vital uh, for this movie and not just the romantic subplot with Liz um, although it actually works really well considering that she's made of fire and he's made of earth um, because as he says he's fireproof so they are very well suited to being together um, and Del Toro specifically thought that and specifically wanted that in the movie for that reason and I think it works really well um he has this wonderful friendship with Abe he has a relationship with his father that's a very typical father-son relationship but once his father is gone he realizes what he's lost um he has an antagonistic relationship with Myers um and he also has this antagonistic relationship with Manning as well but once Broom dies manning kind of takes on this almost fatherly role um 
and it's it's perfectly kind of executed by simply showing Hellboy the best way to light a cigar. Um, and it's just it's just really nice. There's some really lovely character moments in this movie that just really elevate it above quite a lot of comic book adaptations. And the one great thing about the 2019 reboot, I think, is that people saw that and realised what a great thing we had with the 2004 movie. So I think we have to thank the reboot for that. If we're going to thank the reboot for anything, let's thank it for making us realise how wonderful the 2004 movie is. So in a delightful coincidence, um, it was recently, uh, last week, the 16th anniversary of the release of Hellboy. And um, I happened to see a tweet from co-writer Peter Briggs um, about the, the 16th anniversary of the movie. So I retweeted it. Um, and and I certainly didn't expect Peter to comment on my retweet. Um, and nor did I expect him to respond to my request for a little anecdote about his time writing Hellboy. He didn't just provide an anecdote. No, no, no. He provided a link to the first interview that he gave post the release, um, which I'm going to add to the show notes as a link because it's just a web page, but it's really fascinating. Um, and also, in an incredibly kind turn of fate, he agreed to answer a couple of my questions. Um, he then took it further um, and asked for more questions, because <laughs> um, originally I only gave him two or three, and then he said, oh, you can give me more if you want. Um, and then he took it even further, even further, and he recorded his replies um, so we could have a virtual interview. Basically, Peter Briggs turns out to be one of the nicest men on the internet. So what I'm going to do is he's recorded his responses. So I'm going to record my questions separately and then I'm going to splice his answers in. So it sounds like we're having an interview, but we're actually not because I've only spoken to the guy on Twitter and via Twitter DMs. But he's genuinely very nice and he could not do enough. Um, He took a time out of his schedule to do this. um, And I'm genuinely just thrilled to have Peter Briggs on Verbal Diorama. So, but before we get into that interview, I just want to highlight some interesting factoids I found out from that first interview. Um, And it was with dvdtalk.com and it was about his history with the Hellboy Project. Um, And it's things like Peter was always a massive fan of the comics um, and his agent was approached by Lloyd Levin, who was the producer, who asked if Peter wanted to be involved with this adaptation of Hellboy. Um, Peter spent time with Mike Mignola um, at his home in Portland in 1997. He signed the contract to write the movie, uh, finished his draft, and it was at that point, sort of Christmas that year, that Guillermo del Toro was chasing the project and then became attached later as a writer-director. And Peter is credited as the screen story writer with del Toro, but Tel Toro holds the sole screenplay credit. Um, Peter goes into detail on that in the dvdtalk.com interview, which is really fascinating. Um, and also that he never actually worked with Del Toro. The first time he met him was at the premiere. But the most fascinating thing about Peter Briggs is that he created Hellboy's true name. So Hellboy's true name is Anung Unrama. Um, It's traditional in demonology and it means and upon his brow is set a crown of flame. Um, He also created the fact that Rasputin could have control over Hellboy by using the name Anung Unrama. Mike Mignola actually ended up putting the name Anung Unrama back into the comics and it is now canonically Hellboy's true name. 
um, which is really cool, actually, that this this is Peter Briggs' legacy, really, this movie. Um, and I'll link to the interview with Peter, as I said, in the show notes. It is really interesting. It talks a lot about the studio system and the studio politics as well. Um, but as I said, I sent Peter some questions. He kindly answered them. So here's a socially distant virtual interview with the co-writer of Hellboy, Peter Briggs. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for taking the time to answer my questions. Hello, Em, and thank you for having me here on Verbal Diorama. It's um, very exciting to be able to sort of sit here and, and talk about this film 16 years later because I haven't really given many interviews about this thing. In fact, this is only the second one. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's let's get on with the show. I know you interviewed with DVDtalk.com years ago. Um, I'm adding that interview to the show notes for people to read. And I don't want to ask the same questions again. Back in 2004, comic book movies were just coming into the mainstream with the X-Men and Spider-Man movies. Hellboy, with its roots in Lovecraftian horror, the occult and mythology, seemed to buck that cookie-cutter, all-American hero trend. Why do you think it resonated with viewers back in 2004? Well, I'm not sure that comic book movies haven't always been with us. I mean, if you if you go back to the 1940s, 1950s with the old Republic serial uh, chapter plays and, you know, through Adam West and his Batman uh, back in the 1960s, which was a worldwide phenomenon, remember. And then uh, Superman in the 70s, Batman in the 80s, and lots and lots of films before us. I mean, the various Spider-Man movies, X-Men movies... The Mask, which was pretty big for its time. Um, we just, I think, were at a demarcation point in 2004 where everything was starting to sort of ramp up. Um, I don't think um, it was until Marvel that things really got big with just a mass of movies now coming out uh, to the point where people like Scorsese are complaining about them dominating the box office. Um, and, you know, with some justification, I think that Scorsese can say that. Um, we came out April 2004, and um, we had an unusual release, I seem to recall. We were sort of shoved out at a, a strange time. It was, uh, you know, standard at that point to sort of release summer blockbuster movies uh, in that Star Wars slot, you know, the Memorial Day, May the 25th slot. And we were shoved forward a, a few months. And, and remember, you know, if you look back traditionally at uh, comic book movies, you can get killed um, by being in the wrong release slot. Uh, the Rocketeer from 1991, which I love, it's my favourite movie that year, was sandwiched between Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which was a monster, and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Uh, and it was killed. It, it had a... Um, I can't say it had a sloppy release by Disney, but it was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, we, when I heard about our um, release date, I was like, April? Wow. Um, yeah, I don't know about that. Um, but I, as I gather from later, we kind of hit some kind of strange zeitgeist, um, that it was just the right place at the right time. Uh, and and it, was a, it was a doldrum... Uh, release date and I think that was kind of good because I think it made the industry reappraise the way that they do release films now and there's no now no longer that everyone trying to hit that May 25th spot you can now release a film 
throughout the year at, at various times, uh, bucking that uh, established um, studio paradigm. So I think it was um, it was a fortuitous release that we got that. Um, having said that, we were right after Mel Gibson with Passion of Christ, um, and I that was a enormous enormous film, and. I uh, was sort of slightly worried about that, but I thought it was ironic that the um, you know the son of Satan, for that one weekend, bashed us down, uh, bashed him down, uh, into um, second place. Um, although the next week was Easter, and the Gibson's Passion came back up again for the second weekend to regain the box office dominance. But you know it was Easter, and so I think it was right that. Jesus rose again, um, but it did rob us of uh, a second week um, at number one, which was sad. But yeah, we did we did um, you know very well. I mean, we did twenty three million opening weekend, which doesn't sound like a lot now, because you know the, there is the uh, expectation that movies have to come out and and if they don't break box office records, um, they're considered um, a failure, which is insane. Um, you know, I mean, I'm came up uh, as a kid through uh, the era of Star Wars when Star Wars was at the box office for a year I mean you know and then and then subsequently you know not long after went into a re-release so you know the this was a time when uh, you could make a, a, a movie last over a long period of time rack up your box office whereas now you know it has to make that amount of money really quickly um, but we were a modest success we did very well um, you know, we we you know, all in all, we almost hit a hundred million. We were just short of a hundred million, literally just short of a hundred million um, at the box office theatrically. But we did um, we did a couple of hundred million um, in ancillary sales from DVD and cable and uh, and and everything. You know, which I guess was a contributing factor towards um, the movie going ahead with a sequel. Um, but to get back to that question, why do you think it resonated with viewers? Is um, I think it's just a damn good film, honestly. I mean, we have a you know we have a, a strong and likable hero in Hellboy, um, Ron Perlman, uh, bless his heart, lovely bloke, um, played him beautifully, um, and uh, you know there's some great supporting cast with Doug Jones's you know great body language in the suit as Abe. Uh, and John Hurt is is just a very very sympathetic brune. Um, you know, I think that, that that there's a lot of heart in the film, but there's also some great sequences. You know, we've got some whacking great sequences, and as I always used to joke with a co-writer of mine, everything goes better with tentacles. Um, and uh, y you know, uh, Genesis stories, you know, can be good. Um, you know, um, the first Superman, um, Batman Begins, uh, our Hellboy. Um, Iron Man, you know, they can be good, strong stories, and I think ours was. And um, yeah, right place, right time, uh, right red demon is the simple answer. Why do you think the movie still delights viewers, young and old, 16 years later? What makes it stand the test of time? Why does the movie stand the test of time? Um, um, going back to that answer from before, I think it's, I think it's just, um, it's a good movie. Um, it's it was a, uh, a good story. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that you know, obviously, if you look at the um, comic book, 
there are, when I was writing it, I cherry-picked a lot of elements from the few stories that were around at that time. I mean, you've got to realise I was on the movie um, in 1996, I was approached, and um, didn't start writing until 1997 because uh, it took the studio that long to get the paperwork together. I mean, I've been in some situations with studios where even after you've started writing, you still haven't got the contract. You've signed a form contract, which is like a, you know, a couple of pages to get you started and get your money rolling, but you don't sign the contract sometimes until, you know, you've been let go from the project, which is kind of weird. Um, but I started writing in, in I guess, 1997. Uh, I think it was another year or so after that that Del Toro came on board. But there was a limited amount of... Um, comic books from Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy, uh, at that time. So the, in terms of the material that was available to me, Hellboy was a relatively new comic then. If you look at the film, it uses a variety of sources from that early material. I think the movie still stands up after all, all this time um, because it's just really good. Did you ever expect comic book movies to become as mainstream as they have? Um, apart from Hellboy, do you have any particular favourites from Marvel or DC? I'm Generation X, so I'm Generation Star Wars. That's the been the big thing for me um, since the very first movie. Um, and, you know, I've grown up with all those Spielberg and Zemeckis and Joe Dante movies through the 80s and through the 90s. You know, I wasn't old enough to remember Adam West and those 1960s Batman movies, but I was certainly there for Christopher Reeve uh, and Superman in the 1970s. Um, so, yeah, I've kind of, like, gone through them all. I uh, wasn't a huge fan of Burton's uh, Batman, but I loved what Nolan did in 2005 with Batman Begins, even though if you kind of make a comparison... Um, Quite a lot of the, the plot beats from that are lifted from the 1994 Shadow, which is a film uh, I kind of really enjoyed for its uh, fun, goofy value and uh, pulp nostalgia. I love pulp nostalgia movies. Rocketeer, 1991. My God, I love that film so much. I'd love to um, do a, a do a sequel or a reboot of that. Um, but in terms of, yeah, DCs and Marvels, um, Batman Begins definitely top of the pile there. Uh, I did actually like the first half a great deal of um, Batman versus Superman. Um, I, I loved the, the the way that those real characters were set up in a in a real world, and you know it's just a shame that the the Doomsday material in the third act didn't kind of really hold together. Um, I've been offered some DC movies over time. I was offered um, Green Lantern and the Flash and. Uh, I turned down Green Lantern because I, I didn't think it would work. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that the finished film kind of speaks for itself. Um, it's a shame it didn't work, really. Uh, tried to get The Flash to work. Weirdly enough, I met David Goyer years later, and he and I talked about our respective efforts to get The Flash to work. And um, considering that the, the TV show is so good... Um, you know, it's it's a lot of fun, and that they really have managed to pull that off. It, it it was it was ironic in retrospect that neither Goyo nor myself um, managed to do that. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, there, there are an awful lot of uh, um, unmined comic books out there still uh, that I'd love to get my hands on. And I do pitch them. You know, I'm a working screenwriter, so I do get to pitch them to studios. And, and occasionally uh, somebody will reach out to me with a comic book um, that, that they want to develop. Um, I'm hesitant about saying which ones <laughs> which ones I, I want to do because uh, th there's a lot of competition out there um, and there's, there's there's minor minor little uh, gems that, that you know people just really don't know about uh, I mean for example I, I was a huge fan of Star-Lord uh, not the Guardians of the Galaxy version that you see in, in the MCU but the original John Byrne uh, Chris Claremont version um I thought that was superb, and I, I was trying to get people interested in that for years and years and years. And I guess now, unless you know that character gets rebooted, uh, you can't do that. And it's a shame because that's the superior version of Star Star Lord for me. Um, lots of two thousand AD characters uh, I've pitched on, uh, pitched over the years. Um, I've got some stories to tell about that, but I that's for another time. I think I was one of about a dozen writers on the uh, Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd movie, except it wasn't Sylvester Stallone when I was working on it. It was literally right before that I was working on it with uh, Tony Scott and um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And um, there's a couple of little tiny bits of, of what I did which were in the film, but, uh, you know, I know it's uh, people have a split between that and the, the later um, Dread uh, film. I actually prefer the Stallone film, I've got to say, because it, at least it's got the production design and it looks like Judge Dredd. Um, but there hasn't been a definitive Judge Dredd film yet. Um, I, I was working on the Judge Death storyline for that one. Um, would have been a lot of fun, but I'm not sure that the effects were there um, at the time. And, of course, you know, my career started because... <laughs> Uh, I was influenced by the issue zero of the Dark Horse um, Alien vs. Predator comic book, uh, and, and I wrote a spec script which was not really adapted. I mean, it's a different animal, but I kind of used the comic book as a springboard for doing something that was the same but different, and sold that overnight to 20th Century Fox, and that was the beginning of my career. So I'm very much vested in comic books. Um, there have been a couple I've, uh, you know, I've I've been... Uh, offered I turned down I turned down Tank Girl um, somebody approached me about Blue Beetle um, which I turned down because at that time the comic book w was not that great and then they uh, did a, the whole DC reboot with Jamie Reyes and uh, the the alien suit and I that was fantastic I loved that um, and uh, I wish that had been around when Blue Beetle had uh, have been offered to me because you know, I wouldn't hesitate in doing Blue Beetle now. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of comic books out there that I really do love and and would still like to adapt. Um, so Marvel or DC, if you're listening, give me a call. A lot of fans of the franchise weren't too happy with the 2019 reboot. Uh, have you seen it? Uh, if so, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I was very aware of the 2019 Hellboy reboot because um, I had a pro rival project at Universal, I guess you could call it rival, 
Um, it was a spin-off of, of Hellboy, um, a, a sort of BPRD story that um, would have starred Abe Sapien, and um, and we were somewhere along with it. In fact, we were pretty much at a green light on it because they they decided they liked what I'd done with it, and we were ready to go. And um, we ended up having to have a conference call with um, Mike Richardson from Dark Horse, who very politely asked if we could, you know, sit back and, and hang fire on it for a while. Um, and uh, we discovered subsequently that they were shopping the project around to rival studios, and uh, the film ended up at Millennium, and when that happened and there was the transfer of rights, I... You know, that that killed our project at Universal, which was a little bit sad and annoying from our perspective. Um, and I was living in um, England at the time in Bath um, and not far from Bristol where they were shooting Hellboy. And a friend of mine had worked on the production and had given me the script. So I'd read that uh, as they were shooting and, you know, had thoughts about it. And, um, you know, when subsequently the film came out and and didn't do well um you know i i my thoughts largely i guess echoed the rest of the public um i i you know there were things about it i did like i thought the creature's design was terrific um but there was for, for me it, it just didn't look as polished a production as ours was um and I, I think part of that might have been the choice to have uh, shot at Millennium Studios. Uh, everything looked a little bit sort of threadbare around the edges. I mean, if you look at all of the sort of Gerard Butler movies and everything else Millennium shoots out there, it's um, it's not quite polished. You know, it, it looks a little rough. And um, and and tonally as well, I, I think um, it was a little bit more of a grunge, heavy metal sensibility, which. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily really feel is what that title needs. Um, I, you know, I hated the film score. I mean, we had a better one with Beltrami. Um, and, it, you know, I think our photography was better. I think generally we were just better across the board. Um, you know, it, it's really difficult to top John Hurt as Broom and... Um, I, I thought perhaps McShane was miscast. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't surprise me when the film tanked, but it did surprise me that it tanked as badly as it did. Uh, I honestly thought it would do, you know, far better than that off name value alone, but people really didn't seem to warm to it. And I've seen, you know, comments recently in the last few weeks from David Harbour, um, saying oh you know the fans of the original film uh well, it, i yeah his comments are you know I, I have a lot of respect for harbour as an actor but um yeah it's like saying you know people people didn't like our film because yours was better and more liked well you know i can live with that um but yeah it's a shame because it was a it was a missed opportunity and uh you know seeing hellboy again you know which is who's a character I genuinely loved. I was sort of very curious to see where they would go with it, and um, and it was it's it's a shame it didn't meet up to expectations. It's also a shame that it stopped me, you know, from a selfish point of view, stopped me making um, Silverlands, which was the, the thing we were going to do at Universal. Um, although you know, um, Celavi. <laughs> 
Do you still have any trinkets or any memorabilia from the movie? Well, I've got tons of Hellboy stuff. I mean, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I've got... Um, I, uh, I actually have the original artwork for the, um, the two-page variety spread um, showing that we were number one at the box office um, that opening weekend. Uh, I, I've got that, which is nice. Um, the thing I'm sort of most happy about is a is a silly one, but it's um, before the film went into production. Mike Mignola did a, a Hellboy drawing. It was a profile of Hellboy, which was done as a poster, which was a giveaway at Comic Con, and um, they all went really quickly, and and in fact ended up on eBay selling for giant chunks of money. And uh, I remember I used to go to meetings at Revolution Studios, and they had on their wall. Um, a poster signed by the entire crew, including, you know, Del Toro and everybody. And um, I would I would look enviously at that poster and I would, I would actually say to the PAs and the interns in there, you know, I never got one of those posters and they would just sort of grin at me. And um, when Revolution went bankrupt or bust or whatever it was, uh, they kind of sold off all of their assets and their stock. And I uh, very judiciously, you know, waited... Uh, at, at the online auction, and I uh, I bought that poster, the one that used to hang at Revolution. So I've got the the one signed by everybody poster that used to actually hang within the film studio itself. Um, so I'm very pleased about that. Um, but no, I don't have any of the, the props or anything from from the film. Sadly, John Hurt uh, wrote a, a nice um, uh, thing on a, a script for me, um, but that got stolen. Um, so I don't have that anymore, which is a shame. Um, but uh, no um, lots and lots of Hellboy stuff though I still collect Hellboy uh, things to this day Do you ever appear at conventions cosplay or other fan events if so do you have a favourite event you always love to appear at Well um, I'm sure if I was asked um, I would do that I was asked uh, about two years ago to do a Q&A at the uh, Phoenix Cinema in, in uh, uh, England in London um, but no, before that, uh, the last time I, I kind of did anything that was uh, like this was I, I for Sideshow, you know, who do all the fantastic busts and action figures and things. When Hellboy came out, I did uh, Comic-Con in um, 2004 at San Diego and uh, manned the uh, manned the Q&A uh, keyboards for a couple of hours, which, uh, which was a great deal of fun, um, you know, because usually in those events... Uh, the celebrity or whatever, and not that I would consider myself a celebrity by any stretch of the imagination, sort of uh, sits there and and uh, you know, somebody types it all in for them, and I was like, well, you know, I'm a writer, I can probably type faster than your guy, so I uh, I did the, a Q and A, which was a great deal of fun, and um, and did my own typing, and answer so all those whatever. If there's a transcript, all those typo errors are all mine. Um, but no, I would love to kind of, you know, talk about the, the film if, if ever that came up. But um, it, no, I haven't really done very much of that. In fact, I, this is only really um, the second sort of interview I've ever done. The other was, uh, you can find on the internet, it was with Josh Zyber for DVD Talk, which was at the time of the DVD release. Um, I haven't really spoken about Hellboy over the years. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you would almost not know of my existence if, uh, if it wasn't for the fact my name is sitting there on the poster and on the film. You know, uh, that's just 
you know, some people talk, some people don't, and I didn't. And here we are. And finally, what's the best thing a fan of Hellboy has ever said to you? Like, has anyone told you it ever changed their life? Generally, um, nobody's ever really kind of come out and said, oh, my God, that movie changed my life. But, you know, you, you consistently, um, you know, I'm on social media, so I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. And, um, you know, you consistently get people going, oh, dude, that was so great. And it, oh, I won't deny that when um, people say that they like the first movie better than the second, that's always kind of a bit of a smug thrill. It's just it's just nice to kind of, that people like something that you've contributed towards. You know, filmmaking is a group effort. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's 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 all those names at the end of the film that made the film, and you know, you, you have your name on a poster, and that's lovely. But um, but yeah, it's, I'm just appreciative that you know people like the thing that you did. Um, I did an episode of um, Thunderbirds because I was a big, big fan of that. And uh, when I was working with Richard Taylor at Weta Workshop, he mentioned that they were going to be doing this. This is the um, CG reboot of the Jerry Anderson uh, series um, from the 1960s, um, which has now just finished its run in its fifth season. I did an episode for the first season, and that was a big thrill for me getting to write for... Um, uh, one of the actors who played um, the original role uh, in, when I was a kid. And um, I saw on the internet, on one of the fan forums, that this magazine that had been published in Japan for little kids, you know, who kind of, uh, you know, draw their favourite scenes from things and and send it in. And this little kid had drawn in... You know, she she must have only been about you know three or four, had written had drawn the scene I'd done for that episode in crayon, and that was that was awesome to me. I mean, you know that 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 this little little pure kid had you know loved that scene and and done that. But no, I mean in in terms of Hellboy, it's just really nice that um, people people appreciate the film and still enjoy the film and uh, and and it has a life. Um, you know, um, because some films just get forgotten about, and and uh, nobody ever talks about them. And it, and I guess it is a, a a tribute to the longevity and love that people have for for you know what could be just an obscure superhero movie um, that it, it's it's taken on a life of itself and continues to be loved uh, even now, sixteen years later. Peter Briggs, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been an absolute delight having this virtual interview with you. I hope it worked. <laughs> um, but seriously, um, Peter Briggs, um, he's such a wonderful chap um, and, and a genuine delight to chat to on Twitter. He's genuinely a really lovely man. And, um, and I'm just so thrilled and touched that he took time out of his schedule to you know, answer my really daft questions about Hellboy. Um, and, and yeah, he didn't have to do it, um, but I'm so grateful to Peter for doing that. Right, on to the obligatory Keanu reference um, for this episode. Um, this is something that I do where I always like to try and link an episode to Keanu Reeves. Um, this one's super easy, actually, because if you go back to my episode on Constantine, I actually mentioned that it had a link to Hellboy. Um, and that the Spear of Destiny that was featured in Constantine, as I mentioned, Constantine came out in 2005. Hellboy was the year before. So the Spear of Destiny in Constantine is the same as the one in Hellboy. It's not a Keanu-specific uh, reference, 
but I'm still going to use it because there are, like I said, there's a, a lot of similarities between these two movies that they could almost exist in the same universe. Um, so, yeah, that is the obligatory Keanu reference. Go watch Constantine as well. <laughs> it's great. A quick talk about the music. The score was by Marco Beltrami. Um, he also did the score for Logan. <laughs> uh, did I do an episode on that? Oh, yeah, I did. Um, Beltrami didn't return for the sequel, uh, which is disappointing because I think his score is really great. I feel like Hellboy is both an anomaly and a trailblazer. There's nothing quite like it. Uh, but the fact it even got made and was so faithful to the source material is really quite astonishing in the current Hollywood system of risk versus outcome. Um, Hellboy was made for $66 million. Um, somewhere I hope that the actual figure is $66.6 million because it should be. Um, and it made $99 million. So it wasn't a huge success. Um, it found popularity in the DVD market and that was enough to warrant the green light for the sequel which, as I said, we will talk about next episode. Um, I just quickly want to mention, though, um, I don't often recommend other podcasts' episodes. Uh, sometimes I do. It really just depends on what I'm covering and, and who else is covering it and if they're covering it at the same time. But I just wanted to briefly shout out, actually, that there's a really excellent podcast called School of Movies. And School of Movies has been going for a seriously long time. They're a British movie podcast. They've done hundreds of episodes. Uh, one of those episodes was on Hellboy. Um, and I highly recommend you listen to their episode on Hellboy. I love listening to School of Movies because they are so... The detail that they go into is so intricate. It's the levels that I couldn't even dream of going to. Um, but their episode on Hellboy is especially great. So yeah, check out School of Movies. Um... Over to social media thoughts. Um, I was actually, actually a little bit disappointed with social media thoughts this time round. Um, only because there were only Twitter thoughts this time. There was nothing from Instagram or Facebook. And there's not very many. Um, which I always ask for thoughts. I never expect a lot. But I kind of thought for Hellboy, I thought I would get more um but anyway so regular contributor to uh, social media thoughts is andy from geek salad radio and he says if ever there was an actor born to play hellboy i love this movie as it had all of the earmarks of comic book movies of this era dark creepy with a very welcome sense of humor that was lacking in other comic book movies of the time at cinema recall said Hellboy is a film movie, but if you're looking for the same dramatic weight as films like Pan's Labyrinth or Shape of Water, this may leave you feeling burned. Don't know if that was intentional to say burned at the end, considering it's Hellboy. But anyway, it's it's not got the same dramatic weight, but it's I kind of feel like it's not supposed to. Um, I think there is still a lot of dramatic weight there. But yeah, it, it's not like other Del Toro works in that respect. But... At StuntGoat75 said, Ron Perlman was perfect casting. Add that to Del Toro's aesthetic, you have one of the most beautifully designed comic book films. A perfect mix of fantasy and humour. Shame we never got a conclusion to Del Toro's trilogy. Yeah, I'll talk about that next episode. But yeah, um, I'm still sad about Hellboy 3. At Real Hunter MMM said, I watched it and thought, what a really different role for Ted Danson to play. He was great. Was very confused and disappointed when I realised Hellboy wasn't played by him. 
I suppose there is a bit of a Ted Danson-esque look there. I hadn't really thought of it before. Um, but then uh, aforementioned At School of Movies piped up to say, I had never put those two together, but you're not wrong about the similar facial structure. I'd never, I'd never thought of that before, but I suppose, yeah, very, very similar. Um, and finally, at BLC Agnew said, Love it. Great baby's first Cthulhu and a treasure trove of awesome character actors all on the same page with some fabulous monster business. As I mentioned, no thoughts on Instagram, but the post that I put up was liked by actual blue-ticked Selma Blair. Um, So I think we can say that Selma Blair really, really likes the movie. As I said, this episode, crikey, this episode is running really long. It's running much longer than normal. Um, And again, there's so much more we could talk about. I haven't even mentioned uh, Carl Ruprecht Cronin, the assassin and swordsman with the penchant for opera and body dysmorphia. I've not mentioned Ilsa, but then there's not much to say about her. I've briefly mentioned Rasputin. Um, He hasn't got a soul and he's got a tentacled being that's sort of living within him. Um, Really, the main people that you need to focus on in this movie are are the ones that we've talked about um, and just how wonderful the aesthetic of this movie is. Um, And it's just so much fun and it's really great. I would really, really like, considering not many people commented on what their thoughts were, I would really like more people to watch it. Um, I feel like it's a great double feature with Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. Thank you for listening. Um, As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Hellboy. Um, As I said, the next episode is going to be on Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. Um, It's very rare, actually, that I cover a movie and then the sequel straight after. But because I love both movies very differently. Um, As I said, it's both a follow-on and a completely different beast, excuse the pun. Um, Oh, but I love both of these movies so much. Um, I hope you will join me for the discussion next week on Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on... <clears throat> I've talked for a long time, guys, and my throat is just red raw. But here we go. Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods, Speed, Aladdin, 1992 and 2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl... X-Men Dark Phoenix, Charlie's Angels 2000, The Mummy 1999, The Matrix, John Carter, Willow, The Iron Giant, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Logan, Edge of Tomorrow, Legally Blonde, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 4, Episode 10, Hush, Mystery Men, Passengers, Stardust, Constantine, Arthur Christmas, Akira, Kubo and the Two Strings, The Incredibles, The Lego Movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbor Totoro, Spirited Away, Treasure Planet and... Clueless. (laughs) And they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. I do have a Patreon, but due to the uncertainty in the world, I put it on hold. A massive thank you, however, to the patrons of Verbal Diorama, to Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel and Derek um, for continuing to support Verbal Diorama. And also a massive thank you because a new patron joined up recently, which I was not prepared for, um, signed up despite the Patreon being put on hold. Um, So a massive thank you to Jason um, for signing up to Patreon and supporting the show. Uh, Jason is a Ted Theodore Logan uh, supporter. Um, as I've mentioned before, all of my tears are Keanu themed. So thank you very much for your support, Jason.
You can email me general hellos, feedback or suggestions, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. My website is verbaldiorama.com. If you like what I do and you want to leave me a great review, you can do so on iTunes, Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I would really appreciate that. Thank you very much to everyone who's recently left a review. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And finally, I have a column over at Film Stories magazine, which is an independent British movie magazine. Um, I mentioned last episode that the magazine is going on a bit of a hiatus at the moment due to everything crazy going on in the world. Um, If you could still support the magazine anyway and buy back issues or a subscription, that would be great. And I know it would be so appreciated. Um, I'm also doing bits for Film Stories online. I'm still doing my weekly great British movie podcast recommendation I'm also doing my iPlayer list every week and I'm also currently as of now um, but I won't be in a couple of weeks time but as of now I'm also featuring on uh, podcast radio here in the UK where 10 of my favorite episodes are being aired every day at 6am and 11am. I'm currently in my second week. I think I have one more week left to go. So if you're listening to this after April 2020, then unfortunately I'm not on podcast radio anymore. But at the moment, um, I'm absolutely thrilled to be on podcast radio. It's getting some really great reception. Um, That is kind of everything that I've got going on. Again, a massive thank you to Peter Briggs for being part of this incredibly lengthy episode on Hellboy um there was a lot to talk about um Hellboy is such a fascinating topic um but I'm gonna end and I'm gonna end with this I'm fireproof you're not bye Movie Chanel.